Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. I'm Karen Stiller. And I'm Bill Fladeris. Today's podcast, I think you talked with Lydia Fawcett. Could you tell us about her, Karen? Yeah. So Lydia is, uh, she runs End Abuse, which is a program by the Mennonite Central Committee that helps both women and men, but really provides a safe place for women and also touches on helping faith-based organizations become healthier and deal better with abuse when abuse occurs within their communities. And she's also part of the Abuse Awareness and Prevention Network that our publisher, the EFC, has been working on and been a part of for a while now. So what did you talk with her about then? Was it about specific things like how churches can be supportive of people that have been through abuse? It was more about recognizing abuse when it happens, understanding what some of the blind spots are in faith-based communities. This interview actually also appears in the print issue of the March-April edition of Faith Today, where the cover story was also about how churches and faith-based organizations can respond better to allegations, because that is like a really hot topic right now, and should be. I don't like to shit on people, but it should be an issue of concern. Lydia really helped me see the heart of it, to see some of the damage that can happen. And we have a very fascinating digression about Bathsheba and King David that I quite enjoyed and thought was actually pretty important. So this is a this is a good conversation. So Lydia, when we're talking about abuse prevention in faith-based organizations, how do we define abuse in this conversation? So abuse can be physical, sexual, emotional, financial, spiritual. There's many different forms of abuse. And it occurs when a person holding power and other people trust them uses that power and that trust to exploit or violate a person who's more vulnerable. Okay. So it's around power, mm. often more than the other things. And in a setting like a church or a seminary or a ministry organization, I'm going to guess the answer to this is going to be no, because I think we are so much more aware. But do you still come upon that attitude of, oh, that wouldn't happen here, or our people would never do that? Unfortunately, that is still very possible. I think it's less. I'm hopeful that it's less, but I do believe that there are still places that believe it can't possibly happen here. We love each other. We're doing good for each other. This isn't going to happen here. And you know what? That strikes me as such a, like, it's not just naive, but it's also a dangerous mindset, I would think. Because in my experience, when you think you aren't capable of doing something, you're kind of setting yourself up a little bit. Mm -hmm. I would totally agree. I think that we need to be much more open around the possibility of what we can do. And if we can do it, other people can do it. We might say, oh, I'd never say a bad word about my friend. But in actuality, we may do that. And that ability or that thing inside of us, that shadow inside of us is there. God loves all of us. And so to grab that chatter, to acknowledge it and work with it, I think is really important. And I think churches or organizations, Christian organizations, can have those shadows or those, those empty places that aren't quite being looked at completely. So when we think about faith-based organizations, whether they're churches or schools or ministries, um, is there something 
in the culture that is maybe shared across this, you know, religious culture that makes us even more susceptible to something like this happening? Or what makes us susceptible? Well, I wonder about that also because of the work that I do and the stories that I hear. Sometimes it's like there must be a university where the people who choose to abuse others go to because the abuse is often very similar and it's both inside and outside of the church. It's not very much different. And so what is it with inside of a church that would actually, that the place where we to love each other, where we're following Christ's way, where we want to live the Beatitudes, how is it that we do this to each other or allow a leader to do it to somebody within the church? And so I think a really big piece of this is understanding power and understanding how when we gain power, it can really be detrimental to ourselves. The other thing, not only power, but shame. There's so much shame attached to things that if we do some wrong, how would we possibly come forward mm-hmm. and actually be accountable for it? So we hide it, we tuck it away, we ask God to forgive us, we don't really talk about it to anybody, and then we do it again. And I think that's true with not just abuse, but the other things that we see, which is, you know, misuse of drugs, misuse of alcohol, pornography, all of those things. But in the case of abuse, it certainly is true. Now, Lydia, you said the abuse can look similar. Can you unpack that a bit more? Like, what does it look like? So within the church and with outside of the church, my experience has been that it is tied to brokenness within the individual choosing to abuse somebody else. So there's Hmm. something that is not whole within. There's a need or something that they are attempting to fill by the use of power in some way. And so I think that outside of the church, uh, the power can look like uh, you need to do what I say, and this is true within the church also, you need to do what I say, you need to submit, you can't own the house, you can't own the car, you have to do exactly what I want. That would be in how you care for the children, how you clean the house, whether you go to work or not go to work, how you dress, what the sexuality looks like in the relationship, all of those. And and really, I think they're very similar inside of the church and outside of the church. I'm trying to think about if there is a difference. And as I think about the women that I've met, both those women in the church and those outside of the church, the stories are really the same. There is very little difference other than some of the women from inside of the church might be called in front of a board or an elders group or the church pastor leadership group to explain why they're not with their spouse or something like that. In one case, I had a woman from a more conservative Baptist church, a wonderful woman. The Child Protection Agency was involved in BC. And so the Child Protection Agency is telling her something and the Board of Elders is telling her another thing. It's very difficult for a woman then. And so we have all kinds of stories like that. Lydia, that makes so much sense to me, what you're saying about how abuse can happen within marriages. Let's pull it out a bit and talk about within the organization of a school or a seminary or a church or a ministry organization. It feels to me, and I I could be wrong, that sometimes maybe it's not sexual abuse, but it may be more bullying or harassment. Can you speak to that? I I think that um, 
I'm not sure what the percentages are around the difference between bullying and yeah. harassment versus sure. sexual abuse. I do not know that at, off the top of my head. However, I do know that both happen. And uh, we think that uh, the awareness around Me Too movement and Church Too movement, mm. that sexual inappropriateness, sexual abuse by leaders towards congregants or students uh, you know, within colleges wouldn't happen. However, it remains and continues to happen. Now, I have a story, and it's a 30-year-old story. I was the Dean of Women at Columbia Bible College in Abbotsford. And at that time, there was a professor there, and he was there for 17 years. And he was well-loved, well-respected. People loved him, as did I. And a wonderful instructor. He sexually abused students there. And we know of 12. And that was 30 years ago. Unfortunately, when someone is sexually abused, it remains for their whole life. It yeah, doesn't yeah. go away. And so... We know that there are at least 12 women out there, and potentially more, I don't know, that were abused by this particular professor. Unfortunately, some of them have a non-disclosure agreement, so they can't talk about it. But because I was there, and because I know that um, this happened, I can say a little bit about the story. Yes, I know one of the women quite personally, and she continues to deal with this trauma that happened to her. Now, if you look at what's happened throughout our world, and we had some things happen in a big church just a couple of years ago, a well-loved, well-respected leader. So, it's not like it happened 30 years ago and doesn't happen now. It is happening now. And so, what can churches do? What can colleges and universities do or to protect themselves, to, to build awareness, to build prevention, to do things, to make sure that this doesn't happen. And Lydia, thank you so much for reminding us of the lifelong cost and woundedness that victims have to contend with and live with. I think that's has to remain central in our conversation. A couple things struck me from that one is how we can put people on pedestals within, I think, particularly evangelical subculture. It seems that we like our, you know, successful people. And then so that can lead to all kinds of problems, as we all know. But you also mentioned non-disclosure agreements, which sort of keep popping up within this conversation. And my impression is that they're just not a great idea. But what is the current thinking on that? And let me go a little step further, and please correct me here that this is a question. In this post-Me Too era, it feels like it's more okay than it's ever been for someone who's experienced that kind of terrible treatment to speak freely about it, that you know they've been released maybe from shame and embarrassment. And so who does a non-disclosure agreement actually serve? I see three questions. So first of all, I want to read a quote from Diane Lankberg. And it's, we confuse gifts with character. They are not the mm -hmm. same. Yeah. And I think that that's really true in a church uh, when you have music leaders up front doing a wonderful job or pastors doing an amazing job. We confuse their gifts with their character. And I think that we need to learn that and learn to see character and not just gifts. So that's number one. That is such a good word, yeah. And that's Diane Lankbridge. She's amazing. 
The other one was about non-disclosure agreements. I struggle with the goodness of them for the victims. Mm -hmm. I do believe that the victim, the survivor, should have control of their story. I think they should be permitted to share what they're ready to share, when they're ready to share it, with whoever they choose to share it with. And mm -hmm. I think that non-disclosure agreements protect the organization, the individual, whatever it is. I think there was a third question, and I can't remember what that was. Oh, about shame. Do people uh, feel more comfortable now telling their stories? And I would hope so, but my experience with the women that I work with is shame encompasses them. There's this implicit bias within themselves, even if this has happened to them, that somehow they are at fault. They have done something to call on this abuse towards themselves. That's been my experience with the women that I talk to and listen to. And so it's this underlying almost cultural water that we swim in. I'm not sure. I always talk about this is the water we're swimming in, and we need to see it, and we need to learn what it is and see how it's impacting us. So it's this implicit bias within ourselves. So what was she wearing? What was she doing? Right, right, how come she right. went there? Those kind of questions. And yeah. again, this isn't my story. Someone said this in one of the many webinars I've listen to. And we were talking about leaders and they said, it doesn't matter what the woman comes into the pastor's office with. She could have no clothes on at all and the pastor should not or the leader should not take advantage of her because she is vulnerable compared to him. He has power and he needs to acknowledge his power. It also strikes me, Lydia, I, I'm thinking about, and I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here. So I might get in trouble <laughs> for what I'm about to say, but I'm, I, I want us to explore this because I have encountered men of a certain generation, like older than you and I, I would say, who maybe our generation of women, I'm in my fifties, did not do a good job of speaking up and saying, uh, that feels weird what you just said, or please don't rub my back, or I don't need that compliment from you, or even like, and sort of inappropriate things that got said back then, where the culture was that that's just the way it is, that's what men are like, even you got to just brush it off, et cetera, et cetera. And now my daughter would never put up with some of the stuff that my friends and I may have put up with. And I wonder if there's something to discuss about speaking up, even when it's really uncomfortable, and re-educating, particularly that cohort of male leaders who had ne have never had their wrists slapped. And obviously, I'm just talking about verbal, verbal weirdness right now. Or touching weirdness, touching in the yeah. wrong spot, right? Just don't touch my knee. Exactly. That's not appropriate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't want a side hug no. from you. Yeah. I, I think that's wonderful, actually, if the younger generation is being more assertive around saying how they're feeling, being aware of what's kind of creepy or uncomfortable yeah. or just yeah. not right somehow, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that, I think there's lots of discussion around women and men and roles, like gender roles. Are there rules? What's that look like? And I think that it's important for the church to look at that. 
if you look at Jesus and how he treated women, it's like astounding if you think about the culture he was in and how mm-hmm. he loved women and cared for them. We don't often think about that, but now that I'm doing this work and I, I read the Gospels, I think, whoa, he was radical in how he treated women. So, yeah, I think that's very hopeful that young women are more able to say those kind of things. I think I think part of it is education. I think education is really important. And so, if they have the opportunity in Sunday school or church or youth group or even in their homes to learn about who they are and the value of their personhood and their agency, even as small children. In fact, I have a story here. So, my colleague, Elsie Gertzen, who's not with us anymore. She's she's left this employment. She has a story about her two-year-old or three-year-old grandchild. She was going to see them, this family, and this little girl came out, and she asked her little grandchild for a hug. And this little two- or three-year-old said, no, I don't want to hug you. And Elsie said, well, maybe you want to hug me later. And the little grandchild said, no, I don't want to hug you later. <laughs> and so, She thought about it and she thought, isn't that wonderful? The small child, like I was trained, Mm -hmm. oh no, you got to go hug that uncle, even though he gives you the creeps. Absolutely. Even though you don't want to touch him. Get over there. Get over (laughs) there. And you know, if he wants a kiss, you got to give him a kiss, right? It was that whole thing. Absolutely. And so those things are, are part of who I am. And so it's, if I don't feel comfortable with somebody, but I still feel like I have to shake their hand, I have to think about that, right? So let's shift back into the the allegations when an allegation is made in a church or a school or a ministry organization. How do we best respond to a disclosure of abuse? Are there some general principles? So maybe it's more about what should the posture be as opposed to like specific, right. you know, do this, do that, do this, right. do that. What kind of culture are we trying to, should we be trying to create in order to manage this process better? I think we need to be open and curious, and I think that we need to hear the story deeply. I don't think we have to fix it, because actually I don't believe we can fix it. But I think we have to hold our hands open and hear the story, even if we don't believe it, even if we can't possibly believe that this could be happening. We need to listen and be curious. And I think that it's really important in an organization to be able to ask people outside of the organization to come in and do what they need to do to research this. I think that researching things within is too problematic because I have biases. Even if I have sat with and held the story with my hands open, I have implicit biases if I've been involved in the congregation or the leadership in any way. I think that I need to learn about power, and so I do lots of work trying to understand power. What is it? How does it work? I want to see it within myself. I want to understand it within others. I want to know what activates me, which buttons activate me around that. I want to know about trauma. I want to understand when someone is talking to me, are they impacted by trauma, and is that what I'm seeing, and is that why I'm hearing things that are kind of confused or confusing to me? And I also want to know about shame, because shame changes how the story is told to you. And it would change how you listen to what's being shared. Yeah. 
I love that idea of the posture being one of curiosity and openness and the implicit bias you mentioned, because the point of naming implicit bias is that you don't know it's there. You assume that you have it and that helps you understand that you may not be the best person to try to solve this. So, I mean, I hear more and more about third party investigators coming in. So that is a best practice, right? It is. And does that also help the alleged offender more to have that third party? Like I would think if a third party investigator clears you, most people would believe that. Yes. I think that a third party gives us an objectiveness, a more clarity to the story because they may have implicit bias also. I need to say that just around the general circumstance, but they wouldn't have any bias toward the victim or towards the alleged offender. There would be an openness there, an objectivity that someone like from inside would not have. The other thing that I think about an outside person coming in to investigate is they can be not only open and curious, but they can have an ability to keep both parties accountable to telling the story well. I don't know if accountable is the right word, but helping each party tell the story well by asking good, deep questions that when you're in a relationship, you might have certain pathways that you take. And somebody from outside wouldn't know the culture of the church, wouldn't know the culture of the groups, wouldn't know all of those things. And so then could come in potentially with other questions that somebody from within wouldn't have. So that's along the lines of best practices. I'd like to ask you, what would you see as some of the things churches or faith-based organizations typically do wrong when a disclosure has been made? I would say probably the first thing is they don't believe that it's abuse. Okay. And they would see it as adultery of some sort or misconduct of some sort. I think that is probably one of the biggest errors made. And I think that has to do with an understanding of power. Because if we understand that someone has power over somebody else, that's not an affair. Yes. So let me push into that a little bit, because I remember that coming out with the meeting house situation, this distinction between misconduct and clergy sexual abuse. Can you parse that for us a bit more? Well, I think that we just can't believe that a woman who I'm going to say is sexually abused by a leader hasn't done something to participate in making that happen. Got it. Again, I think that that's that understanding of power or not understanding power. I think that people in a position of power need to understand power. I, as a facilitator, I'm not even very powerful, but as a facilitator and a group of women, believe it or not, I have power. And my words or my actions can hurt these women, and I am constantly watching my words watching my actions, trying to be very aware if I have been impacting these women in any hurtful way, because that's not my goal. Our goal is to have a safe relational home for women. We do some things here at MCC around having groups for women and also groups for men. But I realize that power is very, very important. And certainly in churches, I mean, if a pastor is speaking to 200 or 2,000 people every Sunday, many of them are writing madly as he's speaking, 
don't you think that that does something to who he sees himself as? And so yeah. my question is, is if that is you, if that's your position, and if people love you and you're, you have amazing gifts, what do you do to keep your character in a strong and ethically moral and kind and not misuse that power? Is there a place where you can go where you have absolutely no power so that you can understand actually the difference between having power and not having power? I think it's really important for leaders to know that. Yeah. So you're helping me understand. So when people say misconduct, that would be like, oh, they made a mistake and they had an affair. Correct. But clergy sexual abuse is recognizing the power element. Yes. So I'm thinking that if it was a child and an adult, we would never say it was sexual misconduct ever. Right, right, right. Ever. Yeah, of course. We would call of that course. abuse. And yeah. But we think that two adults approximately the same age, that there's equal power between them. In actuality, there is not. Yeah. And kind of baked into our culture, I think, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't think I was alone in this. In the era I grew up, I'm thinking of the King David story, which often gets used to like, oh, remember King David, you know, messed up and he was so great. That gets used somehow as some weird excuse. But I remember thinking that, that Bathsheba was the bad person in that story. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Absolutely. That right? That's what I grew up in. Believing that she somehow seduced him or something. Yeah. And in actuality, he had the power. She couldn't say no when the people came to say, come, King David wants to see you. She couldn't say, oh, no, I'm not going to see King right. David. She couldn't say that. And what was he doing on his balcony looking down when it was normal for what she was doing? Mm -hmm. She was washing herself. That was a normal thing in that culture to do it that way. And then do you think she was happy that her husband died? Yeah, I've seen yeah. this picture of Bathsheba grieving the death of her husband. And just that picture alone changed my perspective of understanding that story. That is very interesting. Like, And, you know, again, that implicit bias, I mean, that's more than implicit bias, but just to recognize what how we have been conditioned to think and respond and believe. And we can't always name the water we're swimming in. And we need to be thinking about that. As we start to wrap up, Lydia, I'd love, you know, to end on a positive and encouraging note, if we can, for the good work that churches and seminaries and schools and ministries and all that can do, um, because, you know, we can always get better. Like, that's the good news. We can get better at this. We know how to get better at this. So what is your encouragement for people out there listening who want to be better? So I believe we do the best that we can with the information that we have. And when we get more information, we can do better. And that's a position of compassion to ourselves. And I think that organizations can take that on. I know that there are websites out there with lots of resources. MCC has one called abuseresponseandprevention.ca, and it's got resources on it. It's got books on it. It's got abuse, response, and prevention, understanding sexual abuse by a church leader or caregiver. It's got a large one called Walking Together, a training manual for supporting people in cases of church leader sexual misconduct with lots of information in it. And it's got a guide for responding to congregational sexual harassment and abuse plus some other things. That's MCC. Plus, there's also a 
Abuse Awareness and Prevention Network, which is through the Evangelical Free Organization in Ottawa. And we are working to put together a website with information. That's excellent. And we will, Lydia, just so you know, we'll put all these links and titles in the show notes so people can go and find them there. And because, wow, it sounds like you guys have done an amazing job at compiling great resources because listening to you list those off, I think, well, there's no excuse for, <laughs> for not starting to do this work. There are a lot of resources out there. It's it's hard work because it's uncomfortable and we don't like being uncomfortable. But, you know, I was telling the women, we had group last night, I was telling the women last night, we we're talking about things and I said, if we want to change, we're going to be uncomfortable. If you want to lose weight, you're going to be uncomfortable. If you want to get fit, you're going to be uncomfortable. If you're working on a master's degree, you're going to be uncomfortable. If you want to learn about abuse and prevention, you're going to be uncomfortable. Out of discomfort can come health and wellness. Amazing wholeness for churches, for individuals. A change in the church is what I dream of and I welcome. I see some amazing things that are happening, women sharing, men sharing. It's really important that men share about abuse and what's happening. And I have heard some amazing sermons about women in the Bible and about divorce and about abuse. And so I know there are people doing amazing work out there and hopefully building strong new leaders and congregants. Lydia, thank you so, so much. You're welcome, Karen. It's been very good being here. Thank you. Faith Today. We hope you've enjoyed this intentionally ad-free listening experience. You can help sustain our podcast by contributing to our publisher at theefc.ca slash donate.